Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three pillars to our writing manifesto. Pillar the first to help you write more, pillar the second to help you write better and pillar the third to help you be a little bit happier while you do those things. To that end I speak to authors, I talk about writing and sometimes... As today, in fact, a listener sends in the first page of their story and I have a look at it and say what I think and some ways that they might make it a little bit better. Yes, 250 words of a story and I'm going to be giving my thoughts. Shall we get right to it? Before that, though, and I swear upon my very beard, this will only be the briefest of tarryings in the Roadside Inn of Audio Admin. But if you would like to submit your very best work for a future episode, you can go to my website timclairpoet.co.uk and click the button that says contact me I, I my background is in performance poet by poetry by the way in case you think that name Tim Clare Poet is just an affectation I just imagine myself so wonderfully eloquent that I'm calling myself Tim Clare the poet I it was I got the uh, I got the website when I was when I was doing performance poetry a lot lot more um and yeah just ro roll with it so you go there you click the um contact me button pop the first 250 words of your brilliant edited polished novel into the body of an email along with your name of course and the title of the piece nothing else thanks i don't need a long synopsis i don't need the background to how you wrote the piece and i certainly don't need your apologies uh, and your expressions of worry about how look you by all means if you don't feel ready for submitting it uh, don't submit it to me there's no shame in spending more time working on something in fact there's no shame in not submitting something to me at all it's entirely if you think you would enjoy and benefit from it but also you never ever have to be apologetic for something you've written uh, not being functionally perfect I've never yet read a piece of writing that is or, produce, or indeed pertinently produced one myself. So let's just let's just put any apologies aside. We'll assume, of course, we understand that whenever we write something, there's room for improvement, but certainly it's nothing that anyone ever needs to be ashamed of, least of all to me. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm not the boss of writing, so you never have to... It's funny, I'm just, you know, I, you know probably you're, you don't feel like that, but it does surprise me when people send me stuff and say, I'm sorry... I'm sorry it's probably not very good, Tim. Well, you should be sorry because uh, you owe me this piece of writing because I'm paying you for it because I'm your employer. No, like I'm I'm just a, a random guy. <laughs> it's really, it's impossibly noble of you to apologise to me. But that's not, that's not a reasonable burden for you to take on. <laughs> it's like I'm 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 just I'm just a random dude. <laughs> why why what, what how how unreasonable would I have to be to have a go have a go at you? This isn't good enough. How dare you? How dare you email me this piece that I've given you nothing for? This person you've never met. Yeah, it's, I mean it's 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 lovely, but you needn't be. That martyrish. We're so worried about coming off across as self-indulgent. The, the internet and the world are constantly shaming people for being self-indulgent and having to bother to write a piece. It's so funny how people are. We kind of go in with this incredibly low-status bids of oh, sorry for existing. It's fine. Be, be super proud of yourself for doing it at all. Most people just don't bother. Good for you. In any case, if you do send it. Um, I may very well use it in a podcast to come. No promises, but I use the majority of ones that get sent to me and I don't have any real kind of winnowing down process aside from ones that are obviously plagiarised, offensive to a level where I just don't think there's anything instructional to, to its offensiveness. You know, it's not something that someone's done unwittingly and by accident and the occasional weird... Um, thirsty ones that people send me. I have no idea why I get that occasionally. I'm not not against romance and uh, erotic fiction, by the way, but just some that read. I, I, let's not go into that now. Anyway, um, you can also drop me a line and say hello um, via the um, contact me 
link as well. Secondly, if you enjoy the show and you'd like to help make sure I can continue to do it, then the optimal way to contribute to that end is to drop me a few beans via my coffee page. That is www.ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Links for that and my website are in the show notes of today's episode. I've just had to pay a couple of hundred quid in hosting costs for the podcast and for my website. So, look, I do my best to put out solid weekly content. I'm I'm keenly aware that it doesn't always come out on a Monday uh, regularly, so it's a bit difficult for people to make their uh, have that kind of like weekly appointment with me and I apologize for that, but I am putting out at least one episode a week, uh just not always on the same day because of life. But I'm a self-employed full-time writer and dad listener support is the only reason I'm able to continue to put the show out and keep it free at the point of use for anyone who needs it. If you'd like to help me with that and help with continuing our mission of creating lots of high quality free writing resources to support anyone who wants to write, please join me. Help the mission. Let's do this. Speaking of which, we've had enough ado. Let's get on with today's episode. Here's the piece. It's called Hard at Work and it's by Ross. Yes, I do do ketamine at work, LSD, Adderall, mescaline, Tylenol 3 and psilocybin mushrooms too. Doping up for maximum performance is part of the job. Optimization of the self is as essential as optimization of our product. Matchington Manor, the adventure-filled candy-matching home decoration game for Android and iOS. Every morning at Zensplosion Studios, after our morning scrum, programmers sneak to the bathrooms for their preferred dose of psychopharmaceuticals. Lucas injects ephedrine into his jugular vein. Side effects, fast heart rate, loss of appetite and an inability to urinate. Just what a coder needs to bootstrap a hackathon. Shruti vapes DMT, filling the company's sensory deprivation tank with raspberry scented vapour as she goes on an intense inward journey transcending language and touching the profound. That's what makes her thousands of ersatz five-star app store reviews so convincing. Raspberries. The forbidden fruit. How I wish I could be in that tank alongside Shruti, our naked bodies weightless in the Epsom salts. But I'd get fired for being inefficient. That's why when it comes to my personal drug use, I like to have one of everything on the menu, please, all at once and in heroic doses. Benzos, uppers, downers, hallucinogens, general anaesthetic, sedatives, tranks, hypnotics, opioids. I've even been known to have a cup of coffee. But no matter how many drugs in my nootropic stack, optimal efficiency somehow eludes me. Why am I not yet a ten times coder? What is keeping me from turning heads in the open plan office at every performance review? Are my solutions, though competent, ever virtuosic? And if you're not the best at something, well, what's remarkable about you? So that's the extract and here are my thoughts. Yes. I do do ketamine at work. <clears throat> oh, so it's been a while since I've looked at a first page and what a uh, potentially rich source of feedback this first sentence is. So first off, let's just get out the way that you're not four words into your story and you've already written the words do-do. Uh, my dearest Ross, do you think your subconscious may have been trying to tell you something? Any double verb uh, where you repeat the same verb twice, the two that leap out most readily, uh, to my brain are doo-doo and had-had. Um, you know, any double verb is inelegant and best avoided. It just sounds clunky and not great, and especially not great if it's the first line, the opening bid of your work of fiction. So that is one small, easily rectifiable gr grammatical quibble. You can kill one of the do's, and the yes part still implies it's a response to a, a nominal audience, which then leads us on to, some might say, the more pressing question of would yes. I do ketamine at work. Be a good opening sentence for this story. No. We didn't dance around the fact that this narrator is not intended to come across as credible or indeed likeable. Uh, that I think that's, you know, a deliberate authorial decision you've made. I, I, I'm not criticising the work on that 
basis alone because i understand it's 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 something that you you've deliberately done and the whole discourse around quote unquote likable narrators and characters in fiction is so ridiculously charged so full of people screaming oh you didn't like my character maybe that's because your idea of likability is someone who doesn't do violence to your complacent middle-class sense of order you fucking fascist oh just because in the first scene they were masturbating at a public hanging and yet the hanging took place in a kingdom but i don't see anything in your three-star goods reads review about the inherent immorality of a monarchy how can you possibly think whacking it to a terrified robber getting their neck snapped on the gallows is worse than the oppression of an entire people you ghoul you puritanical quizzling etc etc i'm caricaturing but to be fair only slightly but it's not like this narrator in your story comes across as grossly offending my sense of decency they just come off as annoying I think it even comes down to that yes part of the opening, implying that, that we, that I, the reader, somehow started the conversation. They're going, like, like I went, oh, what, what are you doing? And they go, yeah, hey, you know, you you got me since you, I, I I feel like I'm 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 sitting uh in one of the seats in a in a in a takeaway waiting for my order to be made up by the kitchen and the guy on the seat across from me goes, What was that? And I'm like, I I didn't didn't say anything. Yes, I am wearing the black bearskin hat and scarlet coat of an officer of the Second Dragoons. Like, it, it, it feels like the person who's desperate to talk about this aspect of their lives and, and to get a reaction. They, they Like, they're trying to shock, which immediately makes me, the reader, feel less interested. Because it, it, it feels like a gimmick. I suppose you're wondering why I'm juggling these chainsaws. Well, to get attention, I should imagine. Like every other hipster and show-off and and knob-end. LSD, Adderall, Mescaline, Tylenol 3 and psilocybin mushrooms too. Doping up for maximum performance is part of the job. Yeah, I do a few drugs. I'll just reel them off to show I'm familiar with the nomenclature. Pretty shocking, I know. How easily the names come to mind and how casual I am about disclosing my use of them. Not to me. For me, it's normal. I'm pretty mad like that. And I think there may be some other aspects to my character and workplace you'll find a little eyebrow raising. No, no, we won't. One, Adderall and Tylenol 3 are just the equivalent in the UK of Pro Plus and Paracetamol with codeine. So immediately in this list are two really unimpressive substances. It's like going, oh yeah, man, I used to be wild. I, 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 I did three... Four lem sips in a day, yeah. Lemon, black currant, max strength shit if I could get it. Beckonets, couple of Barocca for the come down. Like two, don't have the narrator say doping up when four of the five are stimulants. Three psychedelic serotonin agonists and a mild upper in case you're counting. It just sounds like a 13-year-old trying to get served at an off-license. Like why is the narrator so desperate to impress upon us in his first act as narrator, that he's taking a lot of drugs at work. That's not the way that someone who habitually does a fuck ton of drugs talks, by the way, unless they're literally an addict who has to build the entire apparatus of their life around securing their next fix. I mean, I think probably even most addicts aren't that into their own habit. You know, they don't talk about it in this kind of reeling it off way expecting people to be impressed because it's normal to them right it, like if this fictional company really has an incredibly intense drug culture then no one is going to be that bothered about it right like like we don't go on and on about the exact timing and volume of the the cups of coffee we drink every day and then go on to explain in detail as our first point of business when we're talking to someone the coffee habits of our co-workers it's just like yep yeah, coffee machines on the first floor Optimization of the self is as essential as optimization of our product. Matchington Manor, the adventure field candy matching home decoration game for Android and iOS. Okay, so Ross. And by the way, hi Ross, thank you for sending this to me. You are an awesome, valuable person, and my comments are addressed entirely to the extract, which is not in any way a reflection of your worth, but just an external bit of malleable text which we're evaluating and looking for ways to make better. But I get that here you are signalling with that name, that the story is intended to be read as a piece of hyper-real satire, like Matchington Manor is supposed to strike us as, as a bizarrely trite enterprise, 
you, you know you're nodding to some existing games we might even recognize and, and and so this is something you know it's indicative of our modern world and the fact that a team would be doing loads and loads of drugs to produce what is presumably a hugely profitable casual time sink it is supposed to be somehow first that contrast is supposed to be amusing to us you know the the intense drugs and then matchington manor which is you know i imagine a very uh, twee and inoffensive looking game in its kind of appearance uh, and and then it's supposed to, and we're also supposed to be having this satirical indictment of society and smartphone addiction etc etc so you're signaling to the reader um, it's a little bit of a a, a a genre nod here this is the kind of story that you're reading and you're saying don't have the same expectations of a story you might have a, a of a piece of gritty social realism right the, you know so, so that's flagging your purpose we're in a heightened reality here and 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 that's fine like I, I do think it's important to have those nods somewhere early in the story well no not necessarily i suppose you can deliberately do a little misread a mislead about what kind of genre someone's reading i've done that myself i think it's interesting to play with reader expectations i sort of do feel that this is a little on the nose though satire wise but at least we know what type of story you're reading now and we can adjust our expectations accordingly and i think that's important for readers because it helps us kind of know how to fill in the gaps to get maximum enjoyment out of it that's how i, I think of uh, a set of genre as being a, a way of reading interpretive lens that the reader dons to get to squeeze the most out of a story but i'm s concerned right that we're a paragraph in and and i still don't have a hook or a reason to read on like we've not ex established a narrative present you know a, a definite now of the story with drama unfolding it's still in monologue mode in this abstract explanatory expository mode we haven't established a clear conflict or dilemma there's no such and such was stuck the something was definitely causing them a problem but what should they do type of framing that like that is obviously a very bare bones summation of the pattern but you get my gist shock value in a story is very hard to pull off especially at the very beginning where the reader doesn't yet feel invested in your story's reality and so may opt to simply pull out I feel like this paragraph's only opening bid for our continue attention, continued attention is drugs. There were some drugs. Basically, it's like the story begins drugs. Not what you'd expect a humble programmer to be doing at work. And yet here I was doing the drugs. Not just one, five of them. Three, quite illegal. Conventional wisdom would suggest they would make me worse at my job which most people understand to require focus, basic numeracy, and the ability to see. But actually, against everything the symptom profile of these drugs suggests, they actually make me better. And I'm like, I, I'm not convinced that this story is playing fair with me. I'm not, cons I'm not convinced that this author is in control of the world. Uh, and I'm not sure I like this narrator enough to want to spend any time with them whatsoever every morning at zen explosion studios after our morning scrum programmers sneak to the bathrooms for their preferred dose of psychopharmaceuticals why why sneak if this is common knowledge if everyone knows that everyone else is doing drugs why you know un unless they are going through the motions of being edgy and clandestine because they're all as awful and vapid as this narrator who appears to be the result of i don't know a transporter accident between a fedora and a neural net trained entirely on the joe rogan podcast but like are drugs allowed at the company because you cannot be doing the drugs that all these people are supposedly doing and not be discovered that just is not in any way even mildly plausible even in a heightened reality that is obvious bollocks right if someone is actually injecting drugs and if anyone's smoking them right both of those are quite you know, there's a reason that people, you know, that the, one of the big sort of drugs that people would do at work were was cocaine, right? Because it doesn't leave a smell and it doesn't leave marks. It's something that people can do secretly. Are, you know, are, you know, is what's the state of play at the, at the work? Are people allowed to do this? Because if they're not, I don't 
believe for a second that in an open plan office anyone could get away with doing any of this stuff without it being just immediately obvious to everyone. So so that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, immediately that just feels like a, a bit of a weird reality break. And please don't do this thing of using lots of synonyms for the same thing. This is sometimes called burly detective syndrome. Their preferred dose of psychopharmaceuticals. Does the narrator mean drugs? Is that what we're talking about? I just feel like the narrator is doing that thing where you ask a friend something mundane, like uh, if they can pass the source, and then you have a last minute crisis of faith that your request isn't interesting enough. So on the fly, you jazz it up half-heartedly by adding a French accent. Uh, Would you mind passing le source? And I like, oh, now they'll think it, I'm spontaneous and wacky because I added an extra dimension to that otherwise routine request. And I just want to differentiate between you, Ross, and, and the narrator. I know that this is a deliberate authorial choice, the narrator being, and I'm not accusing you of being personally annoying. Um, I know you're trying to make the narrator seem weird and unaware and annoying. Mission accomplished. And I get successful novels have been written where the narrator sees the world in unusual ways or is even unpleasant but my goodness if i had a chipolata for every person who read american psycho and concluded oh i can just write a story where my narrator makes lists and is a twat then friend i would have enough of my preferred casing of sausage meat to fashion a diorama of brett easton ellis being kicked to death by a shire horse lucas injects ephedrine into his jugular vein side effects fast heart rate loss of appetite and an inability to urinate just what a coder needs to bootstrap a hackathon i'm not sure that fast heart rate is a side effect so much as an effect like the drug he's taking is a noradrenaline agonist and then a hackathon i like is lucas writing code or hacking i've got that they were an app company i mean i don't know don't know if hackathon is code is genuine coder speak or just something you made up on the fly it doesn't sound wholly convincing i i don't know like i just feel like i don't not even sure how to pronounce ephedrine ephedrine i don't know how to pronounce it but it just feels like an incredibly unlikely stimulant especially since right because you can you can just take it orally in fact, if you take it orally, it lasts about four hours instead of one. Um, but why has he decided to to take it in the most difficult, unsightly way by 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 injecting it, by having it in, intravenously? Like, like why not just do trucker crank or something? You know, what, 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 there is there are loads of amphetamines that you can take that you can just snort or eat right like why would someone pick the most uncomfortable means of administering a suboptimal drug in a place that's like this is the jugular vein as well apart from that being like really dangerous um it's going to visibly scar up right if he's doing this on the reg like if you're injecting in the same place every time i I don't know like it just like this is the problem with going for shock value is like it if i'm if the reader is shocked because it's because it's unusual the danger is that what is damaged is not you know their middle class sense of order you know, it's not that you scandalize them they just go i don't believe you their willing suspension of disbelief is the thing that gets destroyed not <laughs> not their not their you know middle class centrist mores they're not like oh no they're like i don't no i don't believe you that's ridiculous Shruti vapes DMT, filling the company's sensory deprivation tank with raspberry-scented vapour as she goes on an intense inward journey, transcending language and touching the profound. That's what makes her thousands of ersatz five-star app store reviews so convincing. Right, so first off, um, ersatz means like fake and unconvincing. So they can't be convincing and yet ersatz at the same time. I don't think that those two... I, I know what you're going for, which is that they're sort of like cheesily earnest, but I don't think that's what ersatz means. And look, to an extent, I understand the absurdist comedy in someone doing psychedelics to get in the zone for writing fake reviews. You know, it's like I'm it, it, it's undermining the whole idea that psychedelics are this incredible well of creativity. And then we're using them for something so soul soul destroying and it's it's satire and ha 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 ha. 
although I don't believe for a second that fake reviews require sophisticated writing techniques, I don't think people read them with that with with that level of scrutiny, right? It's just, I mean, I, I, I just, surely they can be produced on mass better by a bot, and I, I know that's not as funny, but then I don't think the original joke works or is convincing. I just, I just, I, and I know it's heightened reality, but it just doesn't. It doesn't see the the internal logic doesn't feel convincing to me. But this just feels so silly that my investment in the story is already slightly dead in the water. I'm just like, come on. And by the way, if you do DMT in a sensory deprivation tank, you will probably drown. I imagine, like, like, and and you will definitely drop your your pipe or your electric vape pen or whatever in the water, right? Aside from anything else, like doing DMT in a sensory deprivation tank, it, it would be like queuing up an Ocean Sounds YouTube vid while you're at the beach. Like, if she's doing DMT properly, then She's going to leave her body. She's not going to be there. So there's no reason to be in a sensory deprivation tank in the first place. All she's <laughs> all she's adding is a drowning risk, right? Like, like it doesn't matter. And like, you know, I've been in a sensory deprivation tank. You have like a, a float around your neck in case you fall asleep. So you can fall asleep and people do fall asleep and not drown. But l- largely what you're introducing is a drowning risk. Uh, while you do DMT, why not just lie down somewhere and do it? Since since you are you are just not there. Like there's no there's no set and setting with DMT. It chooses the set and the setting because it completely takes over if you take if you take enough. Right? If you do your three pulls on that pipe, you're not there. So it just doesn't sound like someone who's doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like someone who is actually a veteran of, of DMT. She doesn't like it. It would be such a bad place to do it it would be like doing it'd be like doing mdma in the customs queue at heathrow and then standing there for an hour it would be just like oh do you know i want to i really want to be i really want to be i really want to be coming up while i'm being jostled by people and being scrutinized by by others right i i want to just while i'm while i'm concentrating and i don't have very much room or autonomy that's where i'll choose to do it like it's it's that level of like inappropriateness that just doesn't seem like someone who is like you know if if, if she was stoned and going in there yeah th- then cool right you're awake and the visuals that you get from sensory deprivation might be enhanced if you do dmt is just stupid it's just an incredibly dumb thing to do like there's no point lying in a pitch black plastic clamshell when you're not there like i don't know like the narrator is naming a lot of drugs but i don't get the lived in sense that any of these people actually do them it just feels like it's just it just feels weird like it's it's like in year eight english when my mate stew wrote a hardcore drugs crime story where a policeman broke open a create a crate in the um criminal's hideout and found a, a white powdery substance and the story had the line he ran his finger through and tasted it it was cannabis and and Stu did actually go on to become a policeman putting that drugs expertise to good use that's why when it comes to my personal drug use I like to have one of everything on the menu please all at once and in heroic doses benzos uppers downers hallucinogens general anaesthetic sedatives tranks hypnotics opioids i've even been known to have a cup of coffee wait what general anaesthetic oh yeah i just you know when i'm when i'm getting hammered i just make myself unconscious to improve my productivity this character can't work out why his productivity isn't as good as anyone else and he's taking a heroic dose of general anaesthetic like he feels like the kid in school who says his uncle owns a plane and flies him to disneyland on on the weekends like in fact like Stu bringing him up once said that his dad was a ninja you know it it gets to a point like the like it gets to a point with that kind of kid where the lies feel so inept you almost pity them and you feel like it would be mean-spirited to challenge them because my god their life must be so sad and they must be so desperate for approval to make up such obvious lies like like they've created their own fantasy world like why is this narrator listing these categories of 
drugs well not sounding convincingly like he does anyone benzos uppers downers well benzos are downers so three into his list and he's repeating himself that's not going well is it Uh, which he then goes on to do three more times with sedatives tranks and hypnotics which are also all downers right and benzos are also sedatives it's like he's going oh mate i watch so many different things the shawshank redemption films movies thrillers stephen king adaptations prison flicks 90s cinema um the oeuvre of tim robbins also like is he is he just lying at this point because if you mix all those drugs you will probably die you're you, you like your if you take tranquilizers with general anesthetics like this it's or with 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 opioids right like some combinations might make your heart stop he he's claiming he takes heroic doses right like I, and i know that that's like a not the, the the heroic dose was like a a a, a specific amount of i think it was originally psilocybin by terence mckenna i think he said it was like 25 grams of dried mushrooms or something this this like large like if you are take like no human can take that much of each of these things without being a spanned wreck like i know there's a whole fad in in tech hell of of microdosing psychedelics right i understand that you know i taking say psilocybin or lsd below below the threshold dose and then going oh i feel so much more awake when you're almost certainly just experiencing the placebo effect because of that level right the it's pharmacologically inert or feeling like a bit of a rebel because i'm microdosing lsd even though i'm taking it in a way that it's not going to have any effect on me but he is saying he's taking loads of these things simultaneously that is just not credible it's like a teenager telling me uh, or they went out last last night oh i got so hammered oh did you yeah i had a 50 beers like he doesn't appear to have any sense whatsoever of what is in the realms of believability like loads of these are highly addictive with a massive tolerance spiral so so like if he's doing this more than one day in a row like he then some of them aren't gonna be he'll be addicted to he'll be dying like who's who the fuck is paying for this this is hundreds of pounds of drugs how is it sourced is it are they legal now who's who's, why would any company employ a a shuddering comatose addict it's 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 nuts like if you've taken if he's taken hallucinogens right like he'll be like who can i I don't think there's like a level you can't go oh well you when you're used to it i read hunter s thompson too and, and and you know you imagine people can function on no you you can't like you 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 cannot like if you if, especially if you're taking sort of not just tranquilizers but like if you're taking like hypnotics right so you know when we're getting into kind of like the antipsychotic types of drugs i've been on them right and you lose the ability you lose the ability to to to, to initiate movement Okay, like you become weak and you cannot get out of your chair. You can't do things. That's what you know. That's why they're antipsychotics, right? It's just not. And then he's taken general anaesthetic, right? Even if you were awake, like you physically cannot feel your fingers. How do you type? How do you how do you walk when you can't feel your feet? Like it's just ludicrous. It's not. It's not like it's not humor. I'm not like, oh, ho, ho, ho. that's a uh, you can't do. You cannot use those things together to quote Guybrush Threepwood's common phrase in is it's a Monkey Island three reference. Look, but like like you you like for example like mega doses of psilocybin on their own or LSD right like cause gastrointestinal distress and diarrhea. Right, hypnotics can make it as I said can make it hard to initiate movement he can't feel things you're just describing a man passed out lying in a pool of his own feces that that would be the result of this if he was not dead you might as well have him claim he comes into work every morning and and eats a skoda or lifts the coke machine with his dick like the coffee comment would be funny right like i understand that he's like uh-uh, you know like as if and, and in other circumstances right the idea that someone could be totally okay with doing 
like you know essentially like barbiturates but not caffeine that could be like a funny piece of satire about the differing standards that people like uh you know are, are drinking uh, having soy milk and caffeine free coffee but then doing cocaine or whatever but in this context it's just another wink to the reader that the narrator knows this is an outlandish claim and therefore we can only conclude that he's doing this he's telling us this for attention he's annoying and unlikable but there's nothing compelling here that makes me want to continue to spend time with him like the hint of a love interest is kind of an inkling of a plot hook you know that was like kind of a moment where like something that he wants and a little moment of vulnerability and a secret and something we've been let into but honestly i also felt a slight moment of ick because we, you know the we we get a woman working in tech and she's introduced not no sooner has she been introduced um, immediately she's the object of a co-worker's lurid sexual fantasy. And I was just like, oh, pl- like, n- what? Like, uh. and I, look, I, I, I know what we're seeing is filtered through one character's point of view, so that's not your take, it's his. And of course he would feel like that because he's not a person that we particularly like, but you've chosen to make him our filter. And it, it still remains that the first female character we've seen, and in a tech setting where women face so much kind of institutionalized sexism you've immediately made the one female character just the object of a sexual fantasy and i just can't imagine sticking out a whole story with this guy i know maybe i sound misanthropic and mean-spirited but what i think ross is that we need to see not that the narrator's rolling out of a laundry list of all the drugs that he and his colleagues do because because you know, aren't these people so intense? Whoa, like he's desperately trying to shock us. But a moment in the narrative, in the narrative present, where these drugs are mentioned en passant, but the narrator isn't bothered. Like, introduce a problem that he's facing in the moment. You know, not an abstract one of nootropic stacks, but like, he needs to use the toilet, but the stall is locked. And, oh, Lucas must be in there shooting up. Like, or give us some piece of code he's working on. I still don't know what he actually does. Like, how much maintenance does this app really need? What are the big emergencies that they face? Give us some immediate problem. Maybe he takes some drugs incidentally in his attempt to solve the problem. But for him, that's only going to be... It's only going to be mentioned... It's going to get the barest mention because it's normal for him. That's what we should be shocked. But it will it'll be more shocking for us if you hold it down and it kind of springs back up because it's just kind of brushed over. We go, what? What did he say he was doing? Like, like he's, he's not... If he tries to wow us, we're immediately get our guard up and, 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 and feel not impressed. But it should be boring to him. That would be the truly shocking thing. If he doesn't consider it worthy of mention... And we go, what? Like, that's a really good technique for creating an interesting, unreliable narrator. And frankly, all narrators are unreliable, by which I mean they're, they're biased and subjective because they're humans. I mean, I think the, the term unreliable narrator is just fucking stupid because if your narrator is a person, then they're partial. Like, that's it's, it's just such a dumb distinction to make. But like, you know, look, try making your viewpoint character, for example, your narrator interested in the wrong things. Like, that's my suggestion. Like, like have him care about something and feel really emotionally invested in something. That feels minor to us. You, you know, like, you, you know, like getting his customer satisfaction rating up to 100 or blocking out an irritating noise or 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 managing to win a bid on eBay for um, a, a pair of trainers that he really wants that are like ridiculously expensive. But he doesn't seem to think so. So we get a sense he must have a massive salary or, you know, getting... His idea for a new update to Matchington Manor accepted at the next meeting, whatever. And meanwhile, all this other dark, cultish, toxic workplace culture is going on around him. But it's all normal to him because he's a fish. He doesn't notice the ocean because it is the environment that sustains him and gives him life. It's all around him. He's never known anything else. Like look, That might be pretty incisive satire. Satire really is just disingenuously accepting the premises of your target's ideology and then pushing them to their logical conclusions, at which point they're exposed as absurd or morally bankrupt. So for this story to work, you really have to immerse yourself in corporate tech culture a bit. You know, imagine what would happen if someone were a true believer of the hype. Push that as far as it can go and then show us the terrible 
results. Now, I do think you're slightly operating in that area here, Ross, and I don't want to be non-constructive with my criticism. You know, some of the sliders in terms of wackiness levels and how exaggerated you can make the reality are, I admit, down to personal taste. So, you know, this is my subjective opinion on it, but I think comedy and satire are funnier and they bite harder the more you can ground them in truth. I also think we'll be more likely to follow this narrator on whatever dreadful spiral he embarks upon if at some level we care about either him or someone in his immediate orbit right from the start i mean god even if we just care about an office pet or the welfare of his pot plant you know either we see some inner vulnerability to him or we see some co-worker who we sympathize with and desperately want to see escape this hellhole even if he doesn't seem to notice them himself but we shouldn't feel like we're trapped in a lift with him it's like what are you offering us the reader here what when you think about the reader's experience what do you think this story gives? Sometimes a character is awful, a misanthrope, but part of us secretly quite enjoys being able to ride sidecar with them and watch them break a bunch of society's rules. It's quite liberating. And sometimes the mores they traduce are genuinely awful. You know, you know, the, the, the character, for all their flaws, has a point. You know, they might be horrible or bitter or a criminal or a murderer even. But look, says the novel, look at the everyday, ugly, culturally sanctioned villainy of the people around them. Uh, American Psycho is, is one obvious example of this. I think of Gordon Comstock in George Orwell's Keep the Aspidistra Flying. He's not a narrator, but it's close third person. But we are completely anchored in his viewpoint. But he's this miserable, misanthropic, snobbish, desperate, emotionally incontinent, impulsive, emotionally abusive poet working in a bookshop who hates everyone who comes into it and longs for the bombs to fall on England and blow all the tasteless advertising hoardings to smithereens. He actually craves the coming of the Blitz. And bear in mind, this book came out in 1936, right? So it immediately took on a much darker edge. And, and, and you think about the audience who received that at the time. In short, like, Gordon Comstock is not an intrinsically sympathetic character. And yet, like, I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe him just being crap and poor and self-destructive and out of control and a bad poet meant that I personally identified with him more than the average reader would. I feel almost embarrassed to admit that as the novel went on, I found myself desperate for him to somehow be saved from himself even though he's dreadful to his girlfriend and he's arrogant and he's self-destructive. And this very bad poem that he's writing slowly builds up over the course of the book. At the end of every chapter, we get another couplet from it. And I think initially we're supposed to read the, the poem as, as a silly and overwrought and a bit adolescent and a bit pretentious. But by the end, when we finally read the whole thing, at the apex of the plot. It takes on a weight and power and a tragedy, and I actually wept. I, I cried for this dreadful, flawed, struggling, completely fictional man who hurts the people around him because, God, he he's, he's human too, and I didn't want him to be suffering. And that, to me, is the essence of why we should bother to write fiction. Any pillock can knock out a story about some noble, striving underdog constantly spat on by the baddies and, wow, don't we want to see them prevail? That is neither a difficult nor revelatory arc to take the reader on. A likeable person is likeable. Who gives a shit? But, you know, to make us think again about someone we would have thought to hate or, contrary-wise, maybe to have an anti-hero make us re-evaluate people we might have thought of previously as heroes or successes who we might have idealised, that to me is the very essence of fiction. We're taking on a dialectic. We are smashing together different voices and, 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 and we're reconsidering what seemed to us before to be obvious. Like I'm not trying to rewrite your story here, Ross, and I'm not trying to push you towards ennobling this protagonist as some tragic anti-hero. The reason I bring all this up and the reason I sidestep into it is I'm just emphasising that you have let's be completely honest, taken on an ambitious, tough challenge here. And I think that's really cool. You are not going for something 
easy. And I think even when we go for something difficult and we stack it spectacularly, that's brilliant, like fucking amazing that there's ambition and, and there's reaching for stuff and we're trying to give the reader an interesting experience, God damn it! Like, I think that's cool. But in this specific case, I think we need some payoff and some sense of surprise. You know, once upon a time, there was a bro who worked in tech. He was a twat. That is not news to any reader. And I want to say, look, if you're going to do satire, you need to get the language spot on. The only part to me, a chap admittedly outside of the app startup world, but the only bit that felt authentic was the name Matchington Manor and, and the mention of the nootropic stack, because that is very much the language of the neurobollocks that tech entrepreneurs like to think they understand with the whole biohacking movement and nonsense like that. So I think that those references felt authentic to me. Those are bits where I invested slightly in the reality of it. But successful satire, actually successful any type of story, uh, you know, you need these moments that really make us go, this person, this author knows what they're talking about. This story feels real. Successful satire needs to be just note perfect. It's like a high wire act. One slip and the whole thing is over. You can't just do broad parody. Here at Mobile Tran Games, it's not the Jetsons, you know, like it, it, that. That's just that's just crap. Like, it's not interesting. The reader will never engage with uh, you could if you were doing like a two minute Saturday Night Live sketch. Right. Like where you just do broad kind of brap, brap, comedy to actually say something. You've got to work a lot harder. It has to be painfully believable. There's some things that you want to dial down the humour, maybe lose a joke to make it more believe like a lot of the references like the flotation tank for example they feel dated already they're kind of noughties tech boom and we're in a kind of I, I guess kind of like late pandemic world where there's lots more teleworking and and, and the whole face of, of tech is is changing and I, I just don't think we have those like the kind of google campus model is already 10 15 years old and it it just it it just felt it, it's like when people do parodies of like hip hop and their rapper is like goes yo I'm MC Cool and I'm here to say I'm the rappingest rapper in the game today and they're doing like a version of hip hop that wasn't even true in the 1980s but is a kind of like 1980s style hip hop to to take the mickey out of hip-hop now and it's like you that does that's not funny satire that's just showing that you're like quarter of a century out of touch <laughs> like it's, you're not you're telling on yourself not on the thing you're trying to lampoon like, i remember reading dave eggers the circle which was supposedly a, a satire of, of google and big tech culture and creeping corporate su surveillance and, and just being blown away by how shit it was on a technical sentence by sentence level in terms of the flatness of the characters the the, the swamps of leaden exposition we're expected to wade through that are all just like front the books front loaded with as it has just sets up the story for ages with just no, it's, with no concession to reader interest just like plod 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 just wait a minute i'm saying and then and mainly just by how ham-fisted the satire is, how small and mean and clumsy it was. It doesn't read like a book written by someone who knows intimately the world he's skewering. It reads like a bewildered dad realising for the first time there are whole important segments of a culture that he just doesn't have access to. It reads like someone getting older and panicking. It reads like a novel-length Andy Rooney monologue. Yep, things sure are cockamamie grandpa and hence it was absolutely adored by a bunch of white middle-class middle-aged book reviewers who like eggers feel the traditional basis of power shifting feel the conversation moving away from them feel with some justification that they are no longer cool or hip or with it or have their finger on the pulse and and they don't want to admit they're scared and jealous what he ended up writing was something that was neither rich, neither a rich human novel nor satisfying satire. It was just scratching an itch for the aggrieved. It was a wish fulfillment fantasy. It was 
a shit book. But I digress. Look, I, I think here you need to take some time to consider the reader's experience. What are you offering them in exchange for their sitting down and reading this story? You need to either dial back the drugs hyperbole, you know, make it make it something, you know, give a drugs regimen that wouldn't kill a shire horse or make this actual near future cyberpunkish SF and, and bring out the human side of the story. What's a problem this character faces? What concretely are they trying to solve and what is in their way? A, a general sense that their performance could be optimised more is not enough. We need something happening now, today, in the narrative present. A desire, an obstacle in the way of that desire, and a time pressure and consequence for failure. The stakes can be large or small, but they need to be meaningful for the character or characters involved. That gets us invested. That makes us feel like we're reading a human story and not just an improbable adolescent boast or a skit. And look, the more emotionally invested you can make us, the more you can trick us or cajole us into caring, maybe holding back on some of the more extreme stuff till we're in, the darker and more horrendous the story will feel when you push it later on. Because it'll be too late for us to disengage. We'll have bought into your world. We'll believe in it. And then we can't easily get out. So whether it needs to be funny or bleak or both or whatever, if we if we care, it'll be more funny, more bleak. Sticking the landing with your characterization is just such a force multiplier for whatever other designs you have in mind. And you can do it with simple tricks, you know, little moments where we glimpse a character's vulnerability, have them long for something, have them worry about something, have them face some kind of conflict, have them, you know, have them water the plant on their desk that makes us like them a little bit. I don't know. I think that's pretty much all I have to say, Russ. Uh, I hope I haven't been too thunderingly unimpressed. I'm, I'm not trying to show off or anything or claim I can do any better. I've tried to engage with this extract, at least on its own terms, though I admit it's not broadly in the area I usually go for. I hope that doesn't matter. I'm trying to react on how to make it the story I think you want to make it. I think there's potentially something in this story idea, but grounded is better than wacky. I mean, I, I, I've read some of Grimes's Instagram posts, so I know the world of the tech super rich has some fundamentally unsatirizable elements because reality is way too weird. We we currently have two tech multi-billionaires openly contesting ownership of Mars while people die from lack of basic medical supplies. So, yeah, it's a rich seam. But finding the human is always the way to amplify whatever feelings you want the reader to experience. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for submitting. If you, I, I'm not addressing Ross now, but you, dear listener, if you'd like me to look at the first 250 words of your novel, go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk, click the contact me box and drop them into the body of an email along with your name and the title. Nothing else, thanks. I don't want a synopsis. I don't... But I do want you to have worked as hard as you can on the opening, so I'll be looking at your absolute best work. That's it for today. No big outro. You have a great deal of my respect and all of my love. Please recognise your own tremendous worth while you're on this planet. What a miracle you are. What a miracle I am. It's lovely to be alive, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>